If you joined us a few weeks ago, you might have seen a good friend of ours, Chad Kapinski, coming on and telling us about the fascinating history of Freemasonry in Ohio. Well, we had an amazing episode, really great conversation, so great we didn't get a finish. So we have Chad back on this evening for part two. So don't miss out. Don't skip. You're going to want to hear it. We have an amazing episode lined up for you right after this on Historical Light. Welcome back to the Historical Light Masonic Podcast, dedicated to illuminate our past and bring our Masonic history to light since 2016. Enjoy the show. Good evening and welcome back to Historical Light, an independent Masonic show focused on the historical events and aspects within Freemasonry. I'm your host, Brother Alex Powers. Pleased to be back for part two of this amazing episode. Brother Chad, thank you so much for joining us again this evening. I appreciate you uh, inviting me back um, and the honor of being called a friend of the show as my dog coughs in the background. I apologize. <laughs> So it's tradition uh, at this point. I think it is that, you know, trouble and Hazel come in and they just have to, you know, make announce their presence with authority. Uh, there you I go. Um, I want to say one nice thing before we start talking, just because I yeah, think go for it's it. one nice thing. So last week was the Midwest Conference of Masonic Education, and you were nice enough to have me on with that. And that's a whole other conversation we could have another time. But um, I think one of the fun things for me was as I was walking around. Um, so walking around the convention about once every 20 minutes, somebody would stop me and say, I heard you on blank. And so you need to know that, you know, at least last weekend in Canton, Ohio, uh, I got stopped at least three or four times when somebody who said, Hey, I heard you on historical light. And, uh, so you've got fans, um, as far, whatever direction from you is, uh, Canton, Ohio. And it was actually, it was kind of nice. It was, so thank you for fantastic to hear. Thank you for the support. And, you know, it's always nice when people say nice things about your friends. That's all. 100%. 100%. Well, I don't want to cut you out on formalities. On the last episode, we went through with your, your introduction and everything. So I'm going to refer, if you missed out on that, be sure to check that episode out and hear that in totality. You're going to want to know that information. And Brother Chad went through his whole introduction there. We are good at talking, so I want to allow <laughs> plenty of time to dive into the the full uh, full story this evening and not take up too much extra within that. But before we get back to that, I do have a couple things to get through. For one, Yvette, my wife, is not with us this evening to share it out like usual, so I'm going to ask all of you watching this evening uh, to do me a solid and share out this live uh, so everyone else can see it on social media and join in with us as well. Um, other than that, we have two more things real quick. Got to give a huge shout out and thank you to our Patreon supporters who have helped keep our show around and keep us growing over the years since 2016. And if you like what you see here, like what we do for the history of Freemasonry, you too can jump on board by going over to historicalite.com support and support the show through Patreon. And depending on the various levels you choose, you can get some pretty cool perks in there as well. Maybe I should have thrown up our, our Patreon 
deal instead of the uh, about to start screen. I'm an amateur. I'm a hack. We're getting there. The other thing real quick is MasonicCon Kansas right around the corner. What's happening again, uh, Historical Light is an official sponsor, and we hope you guys will join us. Uh, we have an amazing venue this year with Rosedale Lodge, also teamed up with Overland Park Lodge. We're going to be doing our meet and greet at Overland Park Lodge Friday evening, and then the full event will be at Rosedale Lodge on Saturday. Uh, we have an awesome lineup of speakers. encourage you guys to jump over to MasonicConKansas.com, check out those speakers, and get your tickets while you still can. We're going to have to be turning off tickets for the festive board here pretty quick. So don't miss out. Secure your spot today. Man, Brother Chad, we had an amazing conversation last time I had you on the show. So good that we didn't get to finish our talk. No, and there's really still didn't. a lot to be said. Well, Ohio's a fairly large state and has, has a fairly long history. And it seems to be one of those places, just because of where it's located, that it's sort of a crossroads and has been in uh, our nation's history. And so just a lot of things end up kind of moving through there. Sure. Um, and so, um, and there's a, you've heard me say all the time about, you know, Mason's reads about meaningful connections and they just seem to be, as you look into the history of Ohio, Ohio Masonry, there are these connections to other places, other times, you know, other areas. So it's all connected. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'm trying to remember where we left off last time, but I know um, we went with the formation of uh, Grand Lodge, which, yes. you know, and I think, I mean, that only kind of scratched uh, the surface. Um, and one thing that I would say to anybody, uh, really, whether you are an Ohio Mason or Kansas Mason or a Guamanian Mason, you know, I'm sure there's masonry on Guam, is that get into the proceedings of uh, your Grand Lodge. And I know you think to yourself, that has to be the most boring stuff in the world. Honestly, it is truly fascinating. And it is a it is a rabbit hole that I still have yet to, you know, escape from. Because what you start seeing is you start seeing patterns, you get a lot of information, you start seeing how the people at that time dealt with many of the same issues that we deal with today, right. but also how they reacted to those issues at the time. You know, we get one view of history, whatever is in, you know, whoever wrote our textbooks in junior high and high school, it's one view. But to see, well, read what the discussion was when Prince Hall was established and all of a sudden, you know, Grand Lodge has heard about this, or when all of a sudden there is this great westward expansion, to be able to sort of understand what the people at that time were thinking, right or wrong, you know, and I think we've said in the past that you know, viewing it with that context in mind, you know, that these that at that time, at that place, that's what they believed. It's not necessarily what we believe in or think now, but it's still fascinating because ultimately Freemasonry isn't the story of, of, you know, buildings and, you know, and movements. It's the story of people. And when you start 100%. looking at those proceedings, what you get the sense of are, you know, uh, you get a sense of what the people are and what the right. people are doing. Well, you know, and it's fascinating because, and this is where we encourage everyone to jump into the history of your lodge, of your jurisdiction, because it is a story of people, 100%. It's, it's really beautiful how as Freemasonry expands, our country's expanding. Like, I mean, that, that it's the drive of people that's making this happen. But those very guys that we see influential in Freemasonry in all of these various areas 
are also some of the biggest names that you'll find that established stuff in our areas that really flourish our locations today. Uh, well, and the one thing that I wish I could, that I wish people would do is, um, and this, you know, is, I think we've said this before, you know, I love the stories of the guys who aren't in the Grand Lodge proceedings. I love the stories of the guys who are in the minutes. I love, you know, looking yeah. at, and I love the stories of Masons. They don't, they don't build statues about, you know, right. That, because those are the guys who, um, those are the guys who made masonry what it is, you know, one brother at a time, one handshake at a time, one community, one lodge at a time. Yeah. And um, yeah, they don't build statues to those guys. And, but it's so true. Should be forgotten. So like you go into any lodge today and one of the most dominant things you're going to find in that lodge typically is a past master's wall, this, you know, full wall of photographs of every guy that served in the East there. And that's usually the iconic image of that lodge's history is just that wall. But think about how many guys never appeared on that wall, but how much work they did to make that lodge what it was, to make that community what it was. I mean, some of the guys I've been able to write the biggest presentations about, you can barely find a picture of. Oh, yeah. But even stranger, or not even stranger, but just, um, I don't know if I told the story on this podcast or not, but um, a zillion years ago, I was doing the, um, I didn't say like five years ago, I was doing the officer installation in my home lodge. And um, one thing I like to do is I like to call out who the oldest past master is, not in terms of like age, but in terms of who served, you know, the longest ago. And it just so happened that at that particular moment, as I'm doing the installation, I realized I was the oldest past master in the lodge, right? That there was nobody in the lodge there right now who was sitting in a chair when I was going through the degrees for one reason or another. Wow. Right. And uh, yesterday was my 13th anniversary of being raised, right? So in 13 years, in this section of events, in seven years, the guys who were there when I was raised weren't in lodge. So that past master's role is amazing. But as I keep telling brethren, you got to keep those stories alive. You got to keep that family history, that oral history alive, because otherwise that's just a bunch of names on a wall. But 100%. if you keep those stories alive, keep talking about them, it's our family history. So for sure, we've really gotten off topic and we've only been talking for like 10 minutes. <laughs> So I know what you wanted to dive in this evening. We had talked a little bit in the green room and prior, uh, being about ritual and kind of how that got established within your jurisdiction. Well, and Ohio is, again, Ohio is an odd crossroads. And it's one of those places that touches up against some other jurisdictions that are major players. And I kind of, you know, lovingly call them the ritual wars, even though there wasn't really, any, you know, <laughs> shots fired. Um, and it really was, you know, I mean, it, it's hard to call it a war as much as it is just uh, an attempt for jurisdictions to kind of establish their own identity. Um, sure. You know, so Grand Lodge of Ohio started in 1808, right? Um, and when that started, lodges just worked in the rituals from the tradition that sired them. So if, you know, they came from Massachusetts or um, New York or Grand Lodge of England. And so what you had is for years, 
you had lodges that just kind of did their own thing as they right. heard it or understood it. Um, and so uh, you could very easily get to the point where you might have maybe two lodges share the same building or two lodges in the same town that work in two completely different rituals. Right. I mean, you couldn't necessarily go from one lodge to the next and be able to, you know, to fit in. Um, what I also think is interesting and um, is that there was no real requirement for proficiency when a Grand Lodge started. It took 42 years. Uh, well, pardon me, almost, uh, sorry, I, I'm bad at math. It took 34 years for them to actually require that candidates are examined in open lodge um, in the degree that they have been taken. So they have to possess some degree of knowledge um, as a condition of advancement. But right. at this point, we didn't have that written um, proficiency that many of us, well, I can't even say that because nowadays it's changed from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, in Ohio, our proficiencies um, are, we have many of them, but our main one is the, the question and answer, right? Sure. Whence came you from the Lodge of Holy Saints, John? What came you here to do? Pack my bags and go to Muncie. I mean, whatever the, the answers, <laughs> I mean, the answers are. Um, Muncie, the secret word. Muncie, the secret <laughs> word. Um, it's not a, not a bad town, by the way. Um, so there was this struggle within um, Ohio to actually, I mean, at some point you have to establish your identity, right? I mean, that's what our ritual, sure. a lot of what it is, is saying, okay, we are Ohio Masons, or we are Kansas Masons or Wisconsin Masons, and part of what defines us are our traditions. And part right. of our tradition is our ritual. So that, in theory, you can go to any lodge anywhere and you can be part of that family. I mean, that's, as you talk about cultures, that's a big thing is that common language, common tradition, common whatever. Um, Ohio had the hardest time in the world trying to get that thing right. We tried so hard to get to a standardized ritual and we were inspired by the Baltimore Convention back in 1843. Uh, and many brethren probably know about this, but in 1843, there was a convention in Baltimore of pretty much all of, it called for representatives from all the major Grand Lodge jurisdictions at the time. And the goal was to try to establish a common work within the United States. Part of that convention was a discussion about possibly establishing a Grand Lodge in the United States, but that right. was pretty much, I mean, almost always doomed to fail. But even then, just kind of saying, okay, we have we have all these people, you know, and all these traditions. Can we at least say here in America, we're at least going to base off of this? And Ohio bought pretty; they bit pretty hard on what came out of that convention. Um, they were very much like, yeah, what happened there in Baltimore? That's great. Um, they actually um, empowered the particular um, delegate there who's proficient in that work to start traveling around the state and teaching people that particular work. He failed miserably because lodges didn't want to, you know, uh, provincial masonry being what it is. People were like, no, that's different from what I learned. I don't want to do that. I want to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's the struggle to get a unified ritual in Ohio took 
generations. The other thing that came about, which was difficult, was that right around, again, after the 1843 convention, um, a couple of things start happening. Um, we actually get a resolution that allows um, work to be done in all three degrees, which still um, doesn't happen in some jurisdictions, but can in um, Ohio. Um, in about 1849, they start requiring that there is, they require that all lodges update their bylaws so that there is actually a requirement for proficiency to, um, to go forward in degrees. What the proficiency is, is not spelled out. Just that somebody has to be examined in lodge and deemed proficient by the master, whatever that means. Right. What we also saw at that time, in starting at about 1840, was there were a lot of people who were traveling around saying that that work that was done in Baltimore, that, that was not the correct work, that they were in fact in possession of the true, correct, and ancient work, and that they would teach this lodge that true, ancient, and correct work for a price. So there are a lot of, for lack of a better word, traveling salesmen who are going yeah. around saying, what you're doing now, that's just total bunk right here. I got the winning stuff right here. And I'll teach it to you for math. And these people made a boatload of money. And whether or not they had the true work, I mean, right. that's hard to say. But it was enough of an issue, I mean, that in 1850, that um, Ohio passed a law basically saying uh, it prohibited any unauthorized persons giving instruction in ritual work for pay. And that caused a slight riot because, you know, now people are arguing over what is actually, you know, what is right? What right. is the right work? So did this happen in your jurisdiction too? Like, is this somewhat similar or no? It, it is somewhat similar. Um, so Kansas had a really weird story. And, and like you said, you know, typically jurisdictions would take their ritual from where they came from. Kansas right. masonry came out of Missouri masonry. Um, as the Indian territory became a thing, guys came over and uh, masonry was established, or so we thought it might've already been here. Right. Um, the uh, the Wyandotte Indians came down from Ohio. And what we've learned recently through research is when they came from Ohio, oh geez, when they came from Ohio, they brought their own functioning Masonic Lodge. So they were already practicing Freemasonry here. Now, I remember I've checked with you and we could never find records that they were actually made Masons in Ohio. But what we have found is that French soldiers had initiated a bunch within the Wyandotte tribe. So we assume that those Indians that came down here were initiated into Masonry by the French. You know, a uh, tribal, a, a tribal leaders at that time didn't really look into government and grand lodges as, you know, jurisdictional necessaries. They saw themselves as running their own stuff. So right. they probably didn't feel that they needed a grand lodge. Um, but shortly after coming to Kansas, they were getting a lot of push from guys on the Missouri side uh, to establish something uh, sanctioned. But even within that, we see for years prior to the Grand Lodge of Kansas becoming a thing, we have guys from all over traveling in, even from the Masonic College, uh, coming in and having Masonic discourse, whatever that means, um, with these wind out officials. So 
they had to have been recognized and considered There's regular somebody. to some degree. Um, but within that, when Kansas Masonry started, they didn't actually take the ritual from Missouri, as you would think. And that's the common joke here in Kansas is our Missouri guys will say when the guys from Kansas went over there, they dropped all the good stuff in the, in the river on the way over and they've got this watered down ritual. But for like 20, 30 years in Kansas, there was no set ritual. So many guys were coming through here as the territory was opened up and uh, that westward expansion was taking place. We had so many people coming from so, so many different locations. Um, it was said to be really a time of chaos in masonry here because not just from one lodge to another, but from one lodge meeting to another lodge meeting, the oh, exact gosh. same lodge. Depending uh, on the master is what they knew, yeah. Right. You'd experience entirely different rituals. So somebody may get a first degree in this type of ritual, second degree in this type of ritual is all over the place. So same type of deal. Uh, around the Baltimore Convention, uh, they had sent up several guys, Vanderslice being one guy I have a big uh, uh, presentation on, and they brought back that to be the official work. And same type of thing, they opened up uh, official-based classes all over the uh, state to teach that work and sanction. So that was the only work allowed in Kansas after that point. Did it actually catch on or did you guys kind of like poo-poo it as well? No, it 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 caught on. And I mean, out of force, right? Um, obviously gotcha. it, you know, probably lacks in many areas today, but that, that standardized work is fairly close still today of exactly what we use. Not much within that work has changed from the point it was adopted. And ours sort of has changed. I mean, after that convention, um, after that prohibition, which is 1850 of saying like, you can't have the hucksters come in and teach stuff. 1857, they actually grab all of the like, you know, the quote unquote district lecturers and they put them in a room and like, okay, let's actually figure this darn thing out. Right. Um, they, and they did it like mouth to ear uh, in yeah. the room. And then they sent out these district lecturers to go promulgate it like mouth to ear. And it ended up, you know, another, another weird way to look at Ohio is how they've redistricted themselves over the years. And how that districting has affected things like the selection of grandmasters, um, you know, the promulgation of ritual that not today, because that's that that involves math and charts. Yeah, that, that becomes um, a story of its own, that's I'm a, sure. That's always a story. Um, but that ritual they did in 1857, nobody likes it then either. Like they just they they just <laughs> of course nobody wants it. And that's so not the way we did it. That's not the way we did it. And we're pretty close to Kentucky, at least down you know, by Cincinnati. And we got my buddy Rob Morris, and Rob starts doing his wackiness. You know, and uh Rob Morris, if people on listening to the podcast don't know, I mean he was a past grandmaster of Kentucky. Um, he, you know, I think wrote the ritual for Order of the Eastern Star. Um, he is considered something, depending on who you talk to, he is uh, at least a colorful and interesting character in Masonry. Yeah. Um and you know, some will say that because of him, he's the reason why Kentucky has no standardized ritual. They've got like three of them. But uh, well done. My buddy Rob <laughs> is close enough to Cincinnati where there's all these Masonic publishers, right? We got Shearer and Lily and like all the rest of the people who were there. Morris picks my buddy John Shearer um, and 
1857, 1858, Rob Morris starts his shenanigans, for lack of a better word. He says that he actually has the most pure version of, you know, the Preston or the Reb, Web ritual at that point. And he starts telling people, you know, again, you pay me and I will gladly give you or teach you this ritual. And he has entire books written, right? He gets John Shearer to write Gems of Masonry. He gets him to do a Freemason monitor. John Shearer is this beautiful engraver, you know, that I'm obsessed with. And honestly, if you are, I think I've said this before on this podcast, go to the Library of Congress, look up John Shearer and get Gems of Masonry, which is an early explanation of the symbols or the Freemasons monitor, again by Shearer, which is pretty much that web monitor um, with um, explanation by Morris of the symbols with great graphics by Shearer. Like it's, it's, it's free from the Library of Congress. It's a really great view of early masonry. But this is also Morris's and Shearer's way of trying to like make a buck and put sure. their ritual out to everybody. Um, Ohio takes a look at that and says, well, okay, that sounds good. But we have to Ohioize it. So we do their own version of the ritual, 1859. And they actually put out a huge edict saying, okay, just kind of like Kansas said, by whomever, you cannot do any ritual other than this 1859 ritual that we've written. Right. Actually, it's not even written at this point. It's still mouth to ear. Like, so we're going to send out district lectures to teach it to you, you know, and if you do one thing out of step, I don't know if the Grand Lodge SWAT team is going to come get you. <laughs> um, and it's, again, it's crazy to me that we didn't write any of this stuff down, Right. I still think to this day that probably the most influential piece of work ever in American ritual has to be like Duncan's, uh, you know, Masonic ritual in cipher. When was that? 1860. Once that came out, that's when guys actually bought it. And like, what am I supposed to be saying here? They probably had more influence on what, you know, ritual is nationwide than any right. other convention. Um, and you still find, you know, versions of that, you know, so on that train of thought, I'm curious, Sure. have you guys discovered or maybe still have uh, early eh, illegal ciphers been discovered for Ohio work? You mean the ones that may or may not be about three feet in front of me on this desk? No, I don't know <laughs> anything about them. No clue. I don't know what you're talking about. Like the ones that uh, use symbols as opposed to letters? Um, no, I don't know. No. Well, so we've obviously, you know, discovered a lot of illegal ciphers back in the day for various rights and orders and stuff, uh, usually from Reading Co. out in New York. Um, but here in Kansas, we actually still have physical copies of some of the earliest ciphers, and I believe one or two of them predate that web work that was adopted. Um, and they weren't known to exist until the guys handed them over on their deathbed saying, right. we don't want anyone else to find this. The first one that was shared was single letter and it took me a good week to crack it. Oh yeah. And um, it was really cool because it was not only single letter and it's been, I'd have to look at it and recrack it essentially, but it's like, it was written backwards, almost like a Judaic text. And then it wasn't in order either. It skipped around, but there was a method to it that finally, when you, you know, you figure that out, it's like, Oh, holy crap. I can read this now, but it was, it was right. very, very clever. Wisconsin lot, Wisconsin ritual from 1918. 
I have an Illinois one in here from, oh, ridiculously early. Um, but, I mean, we had in our code for the longest time that you couldn't be in possession of right. any ritual other than, you know, this one. Um, this In Ohio, brethren could actually buy their own personal uh, printing of, you know, our ciphered ritual in uh, for the first time in 2005. Up until Is that, that right? time. Wow. Up until that time, a lodge would be given a certain number of rituals. And so if you were an officer, then you might have one. If you were a candidate going through the degrees, there might be a divided ritual that you may have right. um, or the, you know, just the proficiency portion of it. But it could very easily be the case um, that, you know, the only time you ever saw a ritual or had a ritual to study from was when you got the degrees and we're doing your proficiency, you might never see it again if you were never an right. officer. That's um, interesting. I'd venture we, to say Kansas has probably had printed rituals since at least the 80s, maybe maybe slight prior. We've had them. Brethren just couldn't buy their own copy of them. They were they Okay. They were limited to the lodge. Like so oh, to the lodge. I got you. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah. Um so in 1893, um, we're going to make for myself, 1891, there's a group that gets together and tries to start writing like a true, like pen and ink copy of the ritual that's going to be kept in the care of Grand Lodge. And I have seen that book and it's hysterical because there's spelling errors all over the place and there's like pencil marks as to how wrong it is. Um, 1893, they actually print out ciphered rituals that are given to Grand Lodge officers and the district lecturers. So they actually have a standardized yeah. Um, and then they said, okay, 1895, they actually give a copy of that ciphered ritual to every lodge. So every lodge at that point, and there were 400 and some, right, in 1895, has their own copy of ciphered ritual. The monitorial parts, those they, I mean, those are, you could buy that almost anywhere. I mean, right. Um, but then when, it was about 19, I'm going to get the right, 1921 was one of the last big um, revisions. And that's when they have a revision that is ciphered more like we know now, has the rubrics for how people are supposed to move. But at that point, um, five were sent to every um, constituent lodge. So that would be for the three main officers, secretary, and um, um, they had five, five of them. I forget. I forget who they're supposed to go to, but that was it. And so every lodge had their own like five. Now right. that typewritten ritual, um, there was one copy, and district uh, deputies and when we saw district lecturers, they could actually check that out every once in a while and like you know have like a typewritten ritual meeting. And I don't have the exact date, um, but it's been in the last 30 or so years that um, there's now a typewritten ritual in every district in Ohio. So every one of our 25 districts has an actual typewritten ritual that, you know, a lodge can actually go and check out. And if they need to, they can actually see written out. Interesting. What word that is actually supposed to be. And actually, we 
Uh, it is the expectation of our district education officers and our district deputies that they'll hold a typewritten ritual meeting in each of the degrees every year. So wow. other okay. sections will have like schools of instruction. It's kind of how we do that in that it is the expectation that um, the district leadership will hold a typewritten ritual. So you can come there and say like, okay, what is this word supposed to be? Or right. what is it actually supposed to do? So. so here in Kansas, obviously, you know, brothers can get their own rituals, uh, you know, printed off. Uh, those early ones, I don't know. You you have a good point. I'm going to have to check in on that. If they were lodge specific or if they were uh, distributed, I'm not 100% sure. But I've heard rumors. I can't say for sure because I've never seen it myself. I've heard rumors that Kansas also has a fully written out ritual from when they first adopted it. From, you know, that very first when web work came back, uh, that it was written out 100% into this book that's been in the Grand Lodge uh, vault. I've heard stories from this from credible sources. And one past grandmaster told me to go tell most worshipful Tracy Bloom, our grand secretary, hey, let Alex see that sometime. And I was up there once and I mentioned it to him and he just smiled at me and didn't say anything. So I'm like, yep. I'm not finding out, am I? <laughs> So I've heard rumors, but I've never seen it myself uh, to actually say it exists. Uh, but kind of like I think Virginia is the same case. They're they're still mouth to ear, but there's rumors that something like that exists, but can't be confirmed. I wonder if it's because of they felt like they were breaking their vow or breaking their you know probably so that doesn't it, exist. <laughs> it doesn't exist, right? Kind of like you know during anti masonry when you know everyone was publishing up those monitors. You know, who was it bought mostly by Masons? It's just that they had yeah. something that they could actually, you know, learn from, uh, you know, and work from. Um, you know, and there are some that will say that that was actually the worst thing that we ever did to our ritual was actually write it down or go away from mouth to ear. And I think we talked about this. I mean, the whole yeah. point of proficiency is that it's you sitting down with another brother and they're like, talking to you, interacting with you. Oh yeah. I mean, especially on the aspect of, of mentorship and that bond. Uh, right. I think we see so much today, at least I've seen the downfall of mentorship is so much become just checking in of, Hey, you got that memorized yet? All right. I'll call you next week. Well, and as we've talked about in the past, like how do you define what a good Mason is? And then so many, right. Somebody will say that the definition of a good Mason is somebody who's a good ritualist and can memorize things well. Um, you know, and that's the thing that I, this is where I get in trouble sometimes, is that uh, nowhere in Ohio code does it say that anything has to be memorized. Nowhere. And so when guys come to me and say, you know, our ritual has to be memorized. I'm like, oh, yeah. I mean, the tradition says that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It doesn't say that anywhere in our code. You know, um, that proficiencies have to be done from memory. You got it. You know, I'm with you, totally with you, absolutely. But if you want to go to the letter of the law, no, it doesn't. So, and again, I have to wonder, you know, Grand Lodge of Ohio existed for what? Uh, 30 some years before they required any kind of proficiency. And then really almost almost 80 some years before they actually had a standardized ritual. Some people are saying, you know, well, we've always had proficiencies. It's always been memorized. I'm like, I, I don't know about that guys, you know? So, um, but 
the like I said, I mean, the establishment of that ritual really has a lot to do with our identity. And I think all of us who have gone and seen ritual from another jurisdiction, you know, we we end up getting amazed at what is similar and what is different. Right. You know, um, I mean, in our we have a chat that we have offline with our friends. I remember once we sat there talking about how uh, the names of the uh, fellow craft in um, the third degree were different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And none of us had ever thought about that. And we, and we made a chart and we're like, well, wow, how does this work? Right. <laughs> Ohio uses this and that makes no sense. And right. You know, Kansas does this and Virginia does this. And I think Wisconsin, if I remember right, doesn't even say the names. They just kind of go out and yell something and come back and say, yep. You know, like, <laughs> so it's, and that to me is kind of one of the fun things is seeing the um, the differences in ritual. Because again, it's sure. it's our own identity. It's our own, you know, sort of thing. But um, one thing that I want to make sure we talk about, just because I think it's, it is intriguing. And I see that I've already wasted, you know, almost 40 minutes of time. So I apologize about that. Not a waste. Is, um, is the Cerno right in Ohio? Because this to me, okay. I think is one of the most, it's one of the most fascinating things in our history that um, I think is, if anybody's interested in Masonic history, it's worth looking into. There's so many great primary source documents from many different jurisdictions to get their viewpoints on it. And understanding that this issue um, ripples through different jurisdictions, for um all across the country and right. ended up i think in my opinion ended up sort of establishing some fairly fundamental tenets in masonry really across jurisdictions so this is a period of time of about 10 years 10 15 years in the late 1800s so we're looking at um about like 1886 or so onward that there was a group uh, that was trying to compete with what we know as the established ancient, you know, and accepted Scottish rite. And they were known as the Cerno rite. A different set of degrees. I think they came out of New York and, you know, but they started to take hold here in Ohio. Um, and there was a competition in terms of which one of these appendant bodies was going to be allowed in Grand Lodge of Ohio established lodges, like what was going to be allowed to be there. And at this point, the Grand Lodge of Ohio, they were allowing what we would call the York Rite bodies. They, they, that had been established, that had been a connection that they were okay with. They weren't okay with anybody else. They okay. were still a little nervous about Scottish Rite in terms of like, they knew it was out there and some of the Grand Masters had taken some of those degrees, but still they're like, I, you know, that's, that's sort of us, but honestly, as Grand Lodge of Ohio, we really only have jurisdiction over Blue Lodge craft masonry. Sure. Um, they didn't allow Eastern Star to meet in uh, in buildings. They said they were clandestine because, you know, Rob Morris and whatever. But um, when Grand Lodge said, you know, we're not sure that we have jurisdiction over something that isn't craft masonry, you know, where there's a vacuum, 
you know, things get filled. And so you have this competing, these competing forces, what we call ancient Accepted Scottish Rite and the Cerno Rite. And um, finally, Grand Lodge of Ohio actually says, okay, 1887, uh, unanimously, they declare that the Cerno Rite is irregular, clandestine, and that anyone who takes, receives, communicates, is present at, assists in any way, shape, or form with any of the Cerno Rite degrees, that is unmasonic conduct, and we'll give you a trial, but you, then you're going to be expelled. Like, it's not even maybe baby. It's just, you want to do Cerno, you can go. That's it. Uh, 1891. So, you know, four years after this is declared clandestine. Uh, New England Lodge Number 4, one of the original lodges that came together to start Grand Lodge of Ohio, basically um, tells Grand Lodge of Ohio to, you know, go do something anatomically impossible and says, you don't really have the right to tell us which Scottish right we can accept. Hmm. You don't have that authority. And so you declaring Cerno right um, as clandestine, that actually goes against our ancient landmarks and goes against our beliefs as Masons. And so we're declaring you Grand Lodge of Ohio as clandestine and so. us and 27 other lodges, we're going to go create our own Grand Lodge of the ancient free and accepted Masons of the state of Ohio. And this is kind of a big deal sure. because now you've got 27 lodges, including some of the major players splitting over this. And this causes a huge rift in Ohio. And you start seeing discussions happening in uh, Georgia, in New York, obviously. One of the more interesting things is that there ends up being this huge tiff between the state of Washington and Ohio that happens to the fraternal consultants because the state of Washington basically says, we see what's happening here in Ohio, and this is just wacky, and gives their rationale. And um, the fraternal consultant for Ohio thoroughly misread it, misunderstood what was said, and basically then writes a really nasty letter back to Washington, threatening that they're going to withdraw recognition because of what Washington said about Cerno. And Washington writes back and says, I totally, it's like, it's like, I feel bad that I'm insulting both the Grand Lodge of Washington and the Grand Lodge of Ohio by saying it's like schoolgirls, you know, arguing at, at oh, over sure. lunch. But that's, yeah, I think we've all experienced masonry in that light. I, I'm sorry about that. You know, but it, <laughs> it's not the way it's supposed to be. That's but the politics of our unpolitical society, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, don't get me started on that stuff. Like, <laughs> I have a daughter who's about, she's getting towards the end of her eighth grade year. I'm in the, uh, that stuff. So, um, but it starts to be a big issue because now, Again, who who has the right to establish what is acceptable in uh, masonry within you know a state? Is there you know is Scottish right its own thing? Is Blue Lodge its own thing? Is York right? Like who has that authority? And so there are there were three cases that were brought in Ohio, um, legal cases because brethren who adhered to Cerno Wright, went to go to, you know, their home lodge, um, 
Ohio at this point was actually requiring a, a loyalty oath. So if you went to go visit a lodge, you had to declare upon your honor that you did not now or had ever, you know, held allegiance to the Cerno Rite or any other rite declared, you know, illegal or clandestine by the Grand Lodge of Ohio. And so guys were like, I don't know that I can, like I can't on my honor take that pledge. And so if guys wouldn't take that pledge, then they weren't allowed to be installed as officers. They weren't allowed to visit. They weren't allowed to do all these things. And so they actually sued the Grand Lodge of Ohio, these three guys, three different wow. cases. And it got brought all the way up to um, the Ohio Supreme Court, um, who took all these cases and were like, okay, this is like, this is weird. And, but it was big enough and there was enough like support behind it that um, these people were basically saying, that they're being treated unfairly by the Grand Lodge of Ohio, and they were seeking relief from the civil courts. And the Supreme Court basically decided um, for, uh, well, it went to the circuit court, which said one thing, that's the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court basically said that uh, the civil courts have no standing when it comes to this fraternal order that um, I'm going to read this because I think it's, it says it you know, right there. So yeah. we must presume that the trial of the plaintiffs will be in accordance with natural right and the rules of the order that if these guys, you know, they have Masonic trial and are expelled, like we have to presume that that's, you know, that's good, but they will not be expelled for disregarding any requirement, which the Grand Lodge has no authority to make. Should the trial result otherwise? It'll be the duty of the plaintiffs to resort to such modes of redress as may be had in the jurisdictories of the order. In essence, um, that it's a now a part of you know settled law that a Masonic lodge has the right to try and discipline its members in accordance with the laws of the order, and that the remedy or any claim of error to such trial is to the higher tribunals of the order itself that the civil courts will not interfere with the construction or enforcement of Masonic law. Hmm. That's a big deal, believe it or not. I mean, I know that sounds kind of silly, but for the civil courts to say, guys, that's you all, right. not us. And we see, we can see both the good and the bad in that going forward, right? When there's affirmative action, basically affirmative act, we, you know, this case law holds up saying, federal government has no real jurisdiction over what happens in that, you know, select order or that private order. Right. Um, when, you know, if somebody does get expelled for, and they believe that it's unfair, they can't run to their legislator. They can't run to the local court. It has to be done within the order. That wall, that judicial wall saying that, you know, there's masonry and there's the, society and the civic right. you know, court that's pretty big that's pretty huge yeah. i think um so and you know i, uh, I think that right, used right. to be looked at so much deeper as well because i think at least here masonic trials today kind of seem they definitely go on but it kind of seems to be behind the curtains and not really talked about 
And if you look back into Kansas history, we had some pretty big Masonic trials when guys were brought up on charges and it was full things. I mean, they would take over the county courthouse and they'd bring in actual attorneys and it, it was, it was big things and documented in the papers. And you don't quite see that level of it today, but these guys took those accusations very seriously and, and fought them. And I mean, yeah, when, when you see at that level that the, the actual law can't step in, uh, you see it duplicated in an interesting manner. Well, and unless unless the law gets broken, right? If correct, I mean, yes. then then when you know the state has standing, then they can actually step in. But otherwise, and you know, again, this is where I can get in trouble. But I mean, that's the we have all heard of trials. You know where there is the presumption that there is the that there is due process and that there is, it is a fair process. But the truth is, you know, you're dealing with Masonic law and a Masonic court, not a civic law and a civic court. They they operate differently, mm. and um, I think we need to understand that. I mean, for good or for bad, like there there is that wall and there is that separation. But um, Oh, I had a point I was going to make, and it just left my head. I think if I had to get a drink of water, it might it might come back. But um, well, you know, on on that topic, just to throw it out there, and I'm not going to go into detail because probably not allowed to. And anyone, any of you guys should catch on, and otherwise hit me up, and we can chat in private. But you know, Masonic trials have often been curious to me because of certain obligations we take within that of protection of another brother, uh, that we're able to get to the point of a Masonic trial. It seems like tricky grounds because of various obligations, but I don't know. I mean, there's also that weighing factor, but it, it's, it's hard to navigate because of specific wordings used. Well, and the hard part is, is that, dude, you're going to open up a huge can of worms here. And because neither one of us is going to be is going to want to or should speak about specifics. I mean, that's right. just the, I mean, the truth. But I mean, if there are people who have done something patently wrong, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they as a Mason, but then they go and I don't know, uh, pick some pick some felony, you know, then according to our bylaws, like that's pretty cut and dry. But then it's the other stuff where it just gets, you know, it gets weird. And it, and it's, um, and when you look, and it's funny because when you look through our proceedings, probably the first hundred years of, of our proceedings, lodges are trying to prefer charges against guys for things like swearing, drinking, you know, yeah. um, being lazy, not, you know, obeying the Sabbath. And so, I mean, and you see in the grandmasters allocutions, all these decisions they have to make where they're just like, really, you're going to make me like, you know, um, I saw one once and this is still to me, one of the funniest things in the world. And, and I wish I could remember what year it was. Cause one of the things I like saw in passing and I'm like, that's funny. I got to come back to that and totally didn't write it down. Um, a lodge wrote a letter to grant to grand lodge seeking permission to put a clock in their lodge room because they, they thought 
based off of some, I'm going to tell the story wrong. They felt that somehow they had run afoul of Masonic law because they wanted to put a clock in their lodge room. And uh, I got to go find it because it's, it, I'd be interested to hear that story for sure. You know, you're, you're bringing up, uh, you know, odd cases and of course the profanity issue. And it, it sparks my mind when I was digging through Gardner's history, uh, I came across thick manila envelope, uh, probably 1920s, uh, Gardner, Kansas, middle of nowhere mm -hmm. at the time. Uh, Not Masonic Dan Gardner. Uh, yeah. So. Right. <laughs> so it wouldn't surprise but, uh, me if he had big, huge, but yeah. So. But it was it was a lodge trial here in Gardner, and guy deserved to be on trial one hundred percent. But what really was comical to me, so the whole story was it was a member of the lodge, and apparently this happened in the intersection just below the lodge. And I don't know if lodges just got out, but there's a lot of brothers there. Of course, it's a small town. That little main strip is like all there is, so everyone's probably hanging out there. But there was a there was a little bit of an altercation in the intersection and two guys started yelling at each other. The one guy that was the more hothead was a Mason from Gardner Lodge and uh, ended up getting some kind of a gun and threatening the person. And all this is documented and, you know, it's right middle of the day in front of the whole town. But the majority of everything that was disputed in this uh, in this Masonic trial, they're really focusing on the fact that he was using language unbecoming of a Mason in front of a lady like that. <laughs> it was like the the whole fighting, the pulling a gun on somebody, pointing it at him. That that happened. But that's he just used that's bad just, words. That's just. That's just... <laughs> it well, just, and I it told you that me. we we talked about like for easily 75 years in our uh history it was parsing uh parsing alcohol who could mm, sell it yeah. you know your your relationship and how many steps away you were from the production sale distribution of alcohol and if you it's were allowed to be mason or not right. it was and then they're arguing over things like okay if it's two percent versus 3.5 like the and you see generations of arguments over this and at some yeah. point again this is sort of i'm working on a presentation for a table lodge that i'm going to be doing in june and part of it is sort of you know um looking at some of these things in our history and you kind of want to wonder to yourself like at what point did we say to ourselves as a lodge like like really like that's what we're going to argue about we're going to argue about this like is this what masonry is going to be like is this do you really have to like i don't know you also said can you just be like why is this what we're arguing about why are we arguing over the length of tails or whether you know whether <laughs> the points in or out or apron like over the coat or under the coat why are we arguing over that right when you know but then I'm kind of like arguing against myself because the truth is, what did I say at the beginning? This establishment of a standardized ritual when in Ohio helped establish us as it gave us identity, it gave us a common tradition, a common purpose, common everything, helped establish us as the Grand Lodge of Ohio. So therefore, I guess those same rules and mores and interpretations, right? If you can be a part of this family, these are our rules. Um, so I mean, it kind of goes both ways.
it just you know again you always wonder about like why why we're arguing about that when there's other things we could be arguing about anyway Most definitely um so I got to not none of the the other thing I want to talk about was the history of education in Ohio. And then we got to none of that, by the way. Um, Sounds like we're going to do an episode. Three. Know, dear, yeah, probably. Um, but the big thing I think I want people to take away from the idea of ritual, at least, or at least this part of Ohio history is that Ohio really has been kind of a crossroads. And yeah, that when you start looking at the proceedings and start looking at what guys are talking about, I would urge everybody to look at the, there's usually a section in the back of all the proceedings that are, it's it's the fraternal consultant, or the fraternal correspondent. It's yeah. the guy who's read all the proceedings from all their other jurisdictions and is commenting on what's happening. And that to me is also incredibly interesting. Um, cliff notes. Well, it's in, again interesting to see the connections. It's also interesting to see, you know, different jurisdictions wrestle with the same things, oh, and they sure. take their cues from each other. And I mean, yeah. like Prince Hall, alcohol, um, Cerno Wright, uh, the different dependent bodies, you know, establishment of ritual. Uh, you know, Ohio for the longest time, and up until like the '60s, I think, uh, you could only petition a lodge that um, each lodge had a, had a boundary around it. And if you lived within that boundary, you had to petition that lodge first. And even if you wanted to go to the other lodge, you had to petition that lodge who like owned you first. And if not, yeah. then, you know, and- It was the same here as well. For 120 years in our history, so many of the arguments are some lodging, hey, they talked to John first and he belongs to us. And so, right. It's a recipe for disaster, in my opinion. But the jurisdictional part of it? Well, just uh linking somebody because of where they live to that that one particular lodge. You know, I, I get the I get the stance that lodges should be the same, but I think there's also a huge factor that you have a personality in each lodge. Oh, I agree. One guy might not fit in as well in this lodge as this lodge and there might be better harmony if he goes over here than here now i agree with you wholeheartedly you know absolutely but i'm going to give you the counter argument sure and it's going to be a very weird not tangential um for a period of time i was a teacher in the milwaukee public schools in milwaukee wisconsin okay and milwaukee wisconsin um determined that teachers were necessary employees like firefighters, paramedics, uh, doctors. And so as a condition of your employment, you had to live within the city of Milwaukee. Never mind the fact that on a teacher's salary, you couldn't actually afford a house in the city of, of Milwaukee. Doesn't sure. matter. Um, and for the longest time, I kind of bristled against that because I was young and, you know, can't tell me what to do, but the reason why they did that was because, one, um, in the case of emergency, teachers need to get to school because if teachers sure. get to school, it's you know, like, and secondly, that tax base and that support. You knew that guys are traveling someplace to go to work, the fact that they lived in the communities in which they served or worked 
they had an investment in those communities. So that's if a good point. Yeah. You live if I if you live here in Albany, Ohio, then maybe the lodge that's in Albany, Ohio, because then those are those meaningful connections in your town, those are your neighbors, those are the teachers. Like you that's an investment in the town that you're in. Even if it's a Albany's not a crappy lodge, but even if you know I'm saying it's a crappy lodge. But you yeah, know, you're first, opening a can of worms. Oh, I love the guys in Albany. They're wonderful. You know, that's such a, the, all, you know, the, all those guys, they're great. Love them. Um, but, uh, Slat, one of their, one of their officers, there's one of my top line signers anyway, but that's a whole other thing about the idea of if brethren are allowed to, you know, what lodge they're allowed to petition. Um, sure. Yeah, we got to none. We got to none of the other stuff I wanted to get to today. I'm terribly sorry, <laughs> but uh, and I. But as always, it was a fantastic yeah, conversation. Sure. But I think the last thing I'm going to say before I don't know I let you talk is just say you know it's really easy for us to kind of write off the history of our lodges or to think about yeah. you know um, get in there, get in there. I mean, I would urge every Ohio Mason, any Mason, go to, you know, George Washington Memorial, where those archives are, look up your lodge, like when it was chartered, there's usually probably, you know, just find out those names. We talked about that wall of past masters. Yeah. You know, it's some of those lodges actually have those lists of past masters going back hundreds of years. There's stories about those guys. Um, keep those stories alive. Um, so, uh, can I tell one last interesting story and then I'm done? I swear to wrote to the toast. Yeah, go for it. I don't know if I told the, did I tell the story about uh, one of the grandmasters from my lodge? I don't know if I ever have it. I don't know. Guy's we'll name is out. Joseph McHenry Goodspeed. Um, he's the only grandmaster to come from my home lodge. His okay. claim to fame is that he actually set the number, the jurisdictional number required to open lodge and transact business in Ohio. You know, which is different than our number in our ritual. It's a constitutional number. Um, okay. But uh, what to me is the funny story about Goodspeed um, is that after he was Grandmaster and he was working here in, uh, locally, uh, his wife died mysteriously and suddenly and tragically. And he was charged, he was under suspicion for uh, the murder of his wife. A whole boatload of his Scottish Rite brethren came down from Columbus, had him committed in the local uh, insane asylum to protect him from charges. So involuntarily, and had him declared insane and committed until they could kind of figure out whether or not he actually killed his wife or not. And then oh, once man. it was determined that he hadn't killed his wife, then they figured out a way to let him out. And he lived the rest of his life in relative peace. Um, and you know, he was a pillar of the community, but it, again, like there's a getting get into the, the history of your grand lodge. Cause it's just weird and wonderful. The stuff you find. There's so. always some good stuff in there mm -hmm. for sure. Yes. Well, my brother, we are at the top of the hour yeah. and as we always end these off with mm -hmm. a toast, I want to ask if you'd be kind enough once again to offer us a toast this evening. Yeah keep doing this and i never think of anything until you know um yeah 
Um, I think I would offer a toast to uh, I'd offer a toast to those traditions um, that define us as a fraternity, define us as a, as a jurisdiction, um, that create those meaningful connections and those bonds that would, you know, have my brethren have me committed should my wife die, you know, in a mysterious fashion. But uh, I think I'll offer a toast to um, our ritual and traditions, uh, you know, long may they live, long may they reign, and long may they make us who we are. So cheers. Yeah, yeah. Cheers. So, and That's i will fantastic. say to you my good friend should your should your wife ever die mysteriously i will gladly have you committed and uh for your own protection i i, I love you so much i will gladly do that for you i love you too brother i appreciate that i was gonna say we're gonna have to edit that part out for security purposes but damn it this is live <laughs> It's all right. She's not watching. My wife just walked in the door. So, uh, That's awesome. she, you know, I just get back from their play. So, well, before we yeah. hop off here, I do want to emphasize one of the last thoughts, uh, with you encouraging everyone to dive into that history. And we've said it on the show a million times, but we can't say it enough because honestly, the history in each of our lodges in 99% of the cases, we are that last generation that has the ability to get in there and do something with it to preserve it for future generations, uh, please go check it out because I guarantee you, most of you will go check out your minutes and you'll see that they are not the best condition. I've seen it firsthand. They're disintegrating before us. The ink is disappearing from the papers. You don't know when that tornado is going to hit, when that fire is going to strike, when that water damage, book mites eating the books before you. We are that last generation. Please dive in there, find those stories. There is some amazing history and preserve it. Digitize it, preserve it, read it, share it. And that's the number one thing. When you learn this history, share it with your brothers. Um, Midwest Conference, we had Dr. Heather Calloway from the Indiana University Center for Fraternal Research come in. She did a phenomenal presentation on just that. Um, she echoed so many of those things that you just said. Um, and so sorry, but yeah, You're good. That's okay. fantastic. Well, brother, thank you so much for joining us again. We will definitely get you back for a part three and keep hearing about the amazing history of Ohio until next time, brothers, keep preserving the history of Freemasonry. We'll see you later. Have a good night. Okay.